Welcome to the Jessica Kent Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Kent. And in today's episode, we are going to talk about giving birth in prison and what my experience is. Now, I have recorded this for my self-titled YouTube channel. This was a couple of years ago, and that video kind of just took off my YouTube career. It is sitting right now at almost 2 million views on YouTube, and that was such such a surprise for me. Before we get into that, today's episode is brought to you by Groups Recover Together. Groups Recover is a both inpatient and online treatment center now available in 13 states and expanding all the time. So maybe by the time you hear this, it will be 17 states. I'm not sure. <laughs> they strongly lean on harm reduction. They are 420 friendly and they are just an amazing team of people. I will leave my landing page with them in the description box of this podcast. So let's get into this. As mentioned, if you have followed me on YouTube, then you know my birth story was absolutely horrible. So let me start from the very beginning. I was uh, currently on the run in 2011 from some felony charges in New York. These charges have since been dropped as there was no evidence to convict me because these are charges that I was innocent of. Uh, it was grand larceny, false written statement, false police report, uh, conspiracy to commit armed robbery. Now, what the hell happened? Uh, my now ex-boyfriend robbed a store that I worked at, and they thought I had some connection to that robbery. I did not. Uh, and the person guilty of that crime, my ex, was arrested and sentenced uh, to prison because of that. Now, New York wanted to extradite me from Arkansas, but there was no evidence against me whatsoever. Um, not a statement, not a phone call, a text, no proof whatsoever that I participated in this robbery. Therefore, the charges had to get dropped. This is kind of a podcast story for another time. Um, but as soon as the store was being robbed, as soon as the person left and I didn't know who it was at the time, um, I immediately called 911. You know, I did everything right as the worker in the store. Moving on from that, uh, that was February of 2011. I traveled the country with a magazine crew, and this magazine crew was so crucial to me being able to stay out of uh, New York State. It was so beneficial to me being on the run because what happened was we were in a new city, a new state every two weeks. So I was moving around the country, and I had a job. During my time on this magazine crew, my drug addiction was so horrible, and my boss you know, sometimes fired me, sometimes didn't. It was just a really difficult situation for my boss who tried multiple times to help me get sober. I just could never stay sober. I relapsed over 12 times, probably 20. I'm not even sure. So it was just a really tough journey for me. I was very good at this job. I was promoted very quickly in this company and um, I, I was a cash cow. I was a queen bee. I was, you know, basically everything that a manager in a magazine crew wanted except for the fact that I was inconsistent and I was a drug addict. And that didn't play well because my addiction impacted the agents and the other people that I worked with. Even though I didn't see that at the time, I can definitely look back on it now and see how my addiction played a huge role for other people that I worked with. Now, I want to say in April or May, I got a text from one of my old runners. His name is Robbie. You guys have met him on my YouTube channel. He was in Arkansas and he was really struggling with an addiction to meth. And I had a couple of months sober. I had detoxed in February of 2011, detoxed cold turkey from heroin. And now I had a couple of months sober. Um, I was binge drinking alcohol, but to me, I kicked heroin and I thought I was so strong. I thought because I was not addicted to meth that I could go to Arkansas and help this person get off of meth. 
What I didn't realize was that I hadn't treated my addiction. I hadn't treated my mental health. I had done absolutely nothing to help my recovery whatsoever. I thought recovery was just don't do drugs. I didn't understand you know, all of the psychological reasons as to why I use drugs. I didn't understand how poor my mental health was. I just thought I was so strong because I quit drugs, right? So I went to Arkansas and I very quickly learned that I could not get this person sober. This person didn't want to get sober and I didn't want to go back to magazine crew. I didn't want to knock doors every day. I didn't want to sell magazine subscriptions every day. Now I am talking about paper subscriptions like ESPN magazine. I'm not talking about like gun magazines. I'm talking about paper subscription magazines. I didn't want to do that anymore. I was tired and I wanted to just kind of chill and lay under the radar. So I had decided that I was going to use meth and sell meth. I'm not exactly sure why I decided to use. I think in part, I was kind of frustrated that I couldn't help my friend get sober. Everyone around me was doing drugs. And because I hadn't treated my addiction or my mental health, this is just what it was for me. You know, so once I started using meth, I found a whole new rock bottom. I was living in a really dirty condemned trailer in Fort Smith, Arkansas, off of Midland and Albert Pike. I got down to probably 85 or 90 pounds. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't drinking water. My addiction was so bad that I thought I just needed to end my life. So on several occasions, I almost shot myself and I just wanted to end this pain that I was in. I was covered in track marks and I was just really just at my lowest. You know, I was selling enough to be able to afford meth um, and basic things, but I was just so at the end. You know, I was sick and tired of the life that I had. I hated myself. I hated my life. I hated my body and I didn't see a way out. I had called friends several times to help me get out of Arkansas. One of my friends, her name is Anna. She's from Binghamton, so the same area that I'm from in upstate New York. And I called her and I said, look, man, I just need some help. Please just get me a bus ticket. She immediately bought me a bus ticket and I didn't get on that bus. Then I called someone else and I said, hey, I just, I really need help getting out of Arkansas. I need a bus ticket. Please help me. And that person immediately bought me a bus ticket. October of 2011, I decide I'm going to leave New York. I am fucking serious. I pack up all my stuff and I got a hotel room in downtown Fort Smith, maybe the Motel 6 or something. And I have a nine o'clock bus waiting for me. So I have to wait for a nine o'clock bus, 9 a.m. It's like 2 a.m. when I get this hotel room. I was so sure that I was going to leave Arkansas. And then at 4.30 in the morning, I got hungry and I decided to go to the gas station. I went to the gas station with um, my ex-boyfriend at the time. We had recently broken up, but I asked him uh, to come hang out with me at this hotel room because I'm leaving in the morning. And he wanted to talk about our relationship and maybe talk about getting back together. I just didn't want to be alone for whatever reason. So... So we drive to the gas station at 4.30 in the morning in downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. If you know anything about Arkansas, you know that it is desolate. (laughs) There is no cars out. No one's on the road. Just us, other tweakers, and some cops. I see a cop parked across the street from the gas station. I immediately tell my then ex-boyfriend, you need to leave whatever you have at this gas station because this officer is going to pull us over. We're the only car on the road. Everything in me said, do not get back in that car. Let him drive. You walk because that cop can't fuck with you if you're walking. Just walk back to the hotel. I didn't listen to my gut instinct that night. And instead, I got back in the car just to prove him wrong. For whatever reason, I was high and I decided, you know what, dude? You think I'm crazy. You think I'm paranoid. You think I'm high. Bet. 
we're going to jail. <laughs> like what? Or you could have just walked down the street and he could have left or you could have stayed at the gas station and he could have drove off and you could have bonded him out tomorrow. No, I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking, okay, he thinks I'm crazy. He thinks I'm paranoid. Fuck this dude. I'm going to prove him wrong. Well, within five minutes, the cop hit the lights, pulled us over. My ex-boyfriend is currently on parole. I am currently on the run from felony charges out of New York, as I've mentioned. Within two minutes of our traffic stop, the drug task force is on scene. This looks so dramatic. This looks like a lot of officers that are not wearing uniforms because there was an open drug task force case against us. And immediately I'm seeing cops that I had seen in Walmart. I'm immediately seeing cops that um, were watching me. And I just know, you know, I had seen one guy at a Laos or a Thai food restaurant and it all starts to hit me. This is not a routine traffic stop. I am so fucked. Now they search the vehicle and they find two ounces of meth. And I am put in the back of this cop car. And over the radio, I kind of hear everything going on with these officers. One officer decided to drive our car to the impound lot instead of having it towed. In my New York brain, that is illegal. Uh, they, they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't mess with the car. The tow truck should put it in the impound lot. This car uh, was a stick shift. It was manual. And when you are driving someone else's standard, <laughs> um, there's a pocket that you have to find. And this officer knew how to drive standard, but he kind of, you know, was a little rough with the car. And because he was so rough with it, um, something had fell out of the dashboard. And I hear all of this going on over the radio. So I'm in the back of the cop car cuffed up and I hear over the radio, you're never going to guess what we found. In my head, I'm like, I bet I fucking can. They found that gun, but they didn't find that gun while I was on scene. This cop drove my car, you know, which the car was not registered to me, by the way. But this cop drove this car and found a gun under the dashboard. I can get away with that. They're under the steering column. I can totally get away with that because I'm a New Yorker and I am very well versed in New York state law. And I feel as though I'm not going to get charged with that. My mind is also running a thousand miles an hour. And I am taken to the Sebastian County Jail and booked in for possession of meth over two ounces and simultaneous possession of drugs and a firearm. But I'm kind of unaware of that at the time. So I am eventually booked in the next day, taken to this pod, and most women recognize me. This dorm in this county jail is filled with a mixture of people, people that I sold drugs to, people that owed me money, people that did not like my now ex-boyfriend, or people that had slept with my ex-boyfriend. This is a very sketchy time for me. I want to say about two weeks had passed and I just was not feeling good. You know, I was still detoxing from very large amounts of meth and Roxy's. I would speedball them all the time, but something else is wrong. And I told someone in the jail, you know, I just I don't feel good. I must have told someone because the next memory that I have, I was in the nurse's station and the nurse was kind of going back and forth between me and some paperwork and some other things. Apparently, I had peed in a cup and this nurse tells me that's what's wrong. You're pregnant. You can go back to your dorm now or go back to the, your unit or whatever they said. And just to paint a little picture here, I was sitting on this nurse's station with my arms crossed in an attempt to cover my track marks. This is a stand that I would do all the time. I would always have my arms cr crossed if I was wearing short sleeves, which I was in this county jail. And the nurse looked at me with such disgust once she saw my track marks. And I understand that judgment. 
you know, I, I put myself in this horrible situation. I'm a, I'm a really fucking bad drug addict. And now you're telling me I'm pregnant. I was immediately in denial. No way am I pregnant. I can't be pregnant. I can't go to prison pregnant. You're crazy. You've done something like you've mixed me up with somebody else. I tell her that she's wrong and that she has confused me with someone else because there's no way I'm pregnant. I, at this time, was on birth control, but wasn't taking it right because I was on drugs, you know? And oh my God. Anyway, moving on from that, I um, went back to the dorm and I tried to go back to sleep. An officer came in and moved me. She had moved cells and told me that I had to move. And when I asked her why, she said very loud, because you're pregnant. Remember what I told you about everyone being sketchy in this county jail and people not liking me and having enemies or people that owed me money, people that slept with my now potential baby daddy. Um, now everyone knows there's a weakness. There's a way to get to him through me. There's a way to get to me through me. You know, it, like this is just not a good situation for me. What this officer was doing was moving me from a top bunk on a top tier floor to a bottom bunk on a bottom tier so that I did not have to walk up and down the stairs. And I didn't have to jump up on that top bunk. And oh my God, that was just so uncomfortable for me because I genuinely didn't want anyone to know that this nurse had said I was pregnant because I didn't really think I was pregnant. I spent the next two months or so in complete denial that I was going to have a baby because, because I knew I was going to prison, but I didn't know how to handle going to prison pregnant. So in my... Uh, in the first couple of months that I was at this county jail, the drug task force came through to try to interview me a couple of times. They asked me where my connection was, where all of this meth was coming in from. And it was very clear that they wanted um, they wanted to bust cartel members, which was in fact my connect at the time. They had been following me for months and I never, I never picked up drugs from the same house twice. And that's why it was very difficult for them to figure out where I was getting this from. And I told them I would not cooperate with them, that I am going to take my charges and do my own time. And if they're good at their job, they can figure it the fuck out. And I didn't want them to come back and bother me anymore. It was in that moment that they said, you're going to serve 20 years in prison. They also found out that I was pregnant and they were trying to use that against me to get me to snitch. Snitching is a very dangerous game. It's a very dangerous game, especially in New York. Now, I know I'm not in New York at the time. I'm in Arkansas here, but I was born and raised in New York. If you're in the street and you're selling drugs and you're using drugs and you're committing crime and you're, in fact, a criminal, then when you get arrested, you don't snitch. You do your own time. If you are a regular citizen and say somebody breaks into your car or breaks into your house or hurts you in some way, you call the cops. That's a normal, everyday citizen move, right? That's not snitching. Snitching is when you are an active criminal and you get arrested and you try to get out of trouble by snitching on other criminals. That is snitching, and that is not something that I was ever willing to do. I will always stand up and take my own time. I'm the one that got busted. I'm the one that's guilty. I'm the one that's going to go to prison, and no one's going to go to prison because of me. I have taken charges for people that did not belong to me. Um, you know, it's just something that it's just something that I did in my old life. So, a few months had passed. It's becoming more and more clear that I am in fact pregnant, and I was offered a new plea agreement months later that was ten years in prison. 10 years suspended sentence um, and like 20 years exposure. 
which is a very complicated way of saying that I'm essentially on supervision forever. Um, exposure time just goes against you if you commit another felony. A suspended sentence is like a conditional release. And in Arkansas, you do 50% of your time on the charges that I had. Well, I don't have five years and I'm not going to sign a plea that says 10 years. I'm not. I will not sign a plea that says 10 years in prison nor was I willing to sign a plea that said 10 years in prison because no one could definitively tell me how much time I would serve. I'm about six months pregnant now. During the course of my uh, six months in this county jail, I had to beg and plead for prenatal vitamins. I had to be taken to the free world free clinic for my doctor's appointments. They would shackle me up and chain me up and two guards usually, would accompany me to the doctor's appointments in the free world. I would walk in the front door like everyone else. People would stare at me, take pictures of me, laugh at me, and speculate as to why I was there. It was the most embarrassing moment ever. At six months along, I was told the gender of my baby, which is a baby girl, um, which I kind of always knew in my heart that I had. I was having a girl. I don't know how I knew. I just knew that this was going to be a girl. So I had called Micah, she forever, um, when referring to my my baby. I had also been offered a five-year sentence, 15 years suspended sentence. I was then offered the final plea that I would get before going to trial. Now, keep in mind, I was a New Yorker. I know I've said that a thousand times, but I thought I was going to be able to go to trial, fight this case, and win on technicalities. They didn't read me my rights. They drove my car to the impound lot and found a gun. I wasn't on scene. I don't know who's like, whose gun that is. I don't know if it was planted. And, um, you know, I really was trying to New York my way out of it. Um, and to back up a little bit here, because I was not cooperating with the drug task force, they hit me with delivery charges as well. So this is a very serious case in Arkansas. Um, and I thought I was going to go to trial. I really did think that because now I'm fighting to at some point get out and get to know my little girl. That's what I'm fighting for. If it was up to me, I would have signed that 10-year plea and I would have been in prison. I wouldn't have thought twice about it. If I can get out in five, I get out in five. Cool. Um, but because I was pregnant, I had to fight so much harder. I didn't want my daughter to know at the time, six months pregnant, I didn't want her to know that I was pregnant in jail. Now, of course, I've rethought that and we now have open conversations in our household, but we'll get into it. So at the time, I thought I have to get out before she is old enough to remember this horrible ordeal. I have to get out. I have to get out. They came back. Um, I was a little over six months pregnant and they said five years in prison, 15 years suspended, 40 years exposure. You guys, I'd never signed a piece of paper faster in my freaking life give me that piece of paper because five years is five years or it could be two and a half years depending on you know what they're going to sentence me under. I could be sentenced in the state of Arkansas to do a third of my time or half of my time. I was sentenced to half. So uh, just to speed up here a little bit, I was sent to prison. In prison as a pregnant woman, I am put in a medium security prison eventually um, after being classified in the max as in fact pregnant. <laughs> um, I was sentenced to I was sent to a lower level security prison that was a little bit more relaxed, uh, had other pregnant women there. More importantly, they had a doctor that would come in and do our routine pregnancy, like weekly updates or checkups or whatever. This meant I did not have to go to the free world. And this was so much better. I felt more comfortable in the prison infirmary than in the free world, obviously, because it was just such an embarrassing moment. So that is where I finished my pregnancy. I had no idea what to expect, but I did see other women have their babies and come back to prison and they seemed okay and they got visitation and pictures of their daughter every week and mentally they seemed like they 
we're handling it pretty well. Now we all handle trauma differently, uh, but I was the only woman in the dorm that didn't have friends or family and my daughter was going into foster care. So my journey was going to look different than everyone else's journey. And that didn't dawn on me for a while. I just kind of assumed that foster care would give me some kind of visitation to my daughter, but we'll get into it. 4.30 in the morning on June 12th, 2012, I went into active labor. I was in excruciating pain, but still in denial that I was going to have a baby that day. I went to chow like regular, just breakfast, morning chow. And it was at this point that I couldn't handle, I couldn't even handle eating. I was in so much pain. Another girl asked an officer to come over uh, and said, she's in labor. She has to go to the infirmary. She's, she's in labor right now. She's having a baby. This male officer said, oh, okay, can you walk down to the infirmary? Me not really knowing if I had the ability to walk, I just said yes, because I didn't want to upset anyone. I didn't want to cause a scene. I just wanted to get out of this chow hall and get to a doctor. I walked down to the infirmary, every step more painful than the last, by myself, or maybe another girl was helping me. My memory is a little messed up from this because of the trauma that I endured. Um, I eventually got to the infirmary door and keep in mind, this is prison. You can't just walk freely anywhere. I had It's controlled movement. They had to buzz me through all of these little areas and hallways. I get to the infirmary room door. It feels like an eternity before they open that door. But as soon as they open that door, I walked in and I said, I'm in labor. I'm in labor. And the nurse said, has your water broke? I said, I I don't know. I don't think so. And she said, sit in this wheelchair and uh, we're probably going to have to wait till shift change and then we'll take you to the hospital. Shift change was hours from that point. Um, And I sat there in the infirmary watching a clock tick, 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 tick for hours, three to four hours. I'm sitting there in excruciating pain, clenching my jaw, holding onto this wheelchair and just wanting to scream. I was in so much pain. And all I could think is I wish my mom was here. Now I can't call my mom. I can't tell her that I am in labor. I can't tell her what's going on. All I can do is sit in this wheelchair by myself and wait for the officers to come in from shift change and take me to the hospital. Eventually they did that. It was about almost nine o'clock in the morning when I got to the hospital. The initial officers that went with me that morning were so kind to me as nursing staff kind of swished around me and talked to the cops and didn't talk to me. And I felt like I just wasn't even there. It was such an out-of-body experience. Like, how did I get here? How is this happening to me? Oh my God, I'm in so much pain. Are they going to give me an epidural? Why is everyone not even looking at me? Like I'm some diseased, like, like I'm just this thing. I'm not a person at all. Eventually, about an hour later, uh, I was given an epidural and my pain kind of stopped Um, for whatever reason. I felt everything on one side and not the other. This gave me extreme anxiety as I didn't know if something was really wrong with me. And I didn't get much relief from that epidural. The female guard that was with me at that moment, she had recently become a grandmother and she was really kind to me. And I wish she could have stayed the whole time. At 3.30 p.m. June 12th, I started to push and Micah was born just after a few pushes. And I decided that I was going to protect myself. And I wasn't going to look at her because I knew they were going to take her away from me. And that's a horrible thing to say. 
But unless you've experienced this trauma in the way that I've experienced this trauma, I don't think you'll understand. Um, I was terrified that I was going to love this little person that I've just made. And I've just spent nine months protecting in this jail and then prison. And there was drama all throughout my pregnancy. I have worked so hard to do the best I can with nutrition and water intake. I fought for prenatal vitamins. I fought to keep her safe because women, I was tripped one time and women just didn't like me. And now I am going to look at this little baby that I've protected for nine months that I've made and I'm going to love her and then I'm going to lose her. I didn't know how to handle that. So for a moment, a very brief one, I looked to the opposite side of the room as they took my daughter and kind of cleaned her up and did all the no sucky things. And uh, that corrections officer that was so kind to me, she said, girl, you better look at that baby. She knew. She knew that this was a moment that was so hard for me. She knew that the trauma that I was about to endure was a lot to handle. And they brought Micah over to me and they set her on my chest and I fell in love with her. She was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Thick, full hair, just so much hair and so beautiful and so little. She was almost seven pounds. And I thought, oh my God, I did this. I made this little person and she's so perfect and she's so cute. And I can't believe that I just made this little person. And I was obsessed with her. And then shift change happened. A new officer comes in and yells at me for not being chained to the bed. Now I was handcuffed to the bed the whole time. Now, I do think that I was handcuffed to the bed during labor, not while I was pushing, but during my active labor. Um, eventually, eventually, it was taken off of me, I believed, like to push. Um, and it wasn't put back on for a little while because I was holding this baby and I couldn't walk. Um, the officer came in and immediately chained my leg to the bed. And I was chained to that bed almost for two days straight. That officer was a woman and I will never forget her as long as I live. I'll never forget what she looked like. I'll never forget the way that she talked to me and I will never forget her body language and her attitude with me for that whole shift, 12 hours. She was disgusted with me. She didn't want to unchain my legs so I could go to the bathroom. And when the doctor came in and told that corrections officer that I need to get up and walk around the room or walk around the hospital so that I could properly heal my body, she said, no, that is a security risk. I'm not unchaining her at all. Because of that event, my body didn't heal for a long time. And I spent months limping because I didn't, my body wasn't healing as quickly as it should have. And my body wasn't okay. During the course of these two days, I was denied bathroom breaks. Um, she didn't want to unchain me to go to the bathroom. And that was a horrifying experience for me um, because I didn't want to put this baby down and walk into the bathroom and leave my baby with this officer. I, I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel safe. And um, I also didn't want to hear her complaining and moaning and groaning about having to get up and unchain me and watch me in the bathroom and then chain me back to the bed. She was so nasty to me that I just wanted to hold it because, again, I didn't feel comfortable with my baby being alone in this room with this officer because she was fucking nasty to me. Shift change happened. I got yet another horrible officer that clearly didn't want to be at this hospital. Um, so for two days after I gave birth to my daughter, I was in pain. I was going through trauma, but I was still doing my absolute best to enjoy this time that I had with my daughter. 
if you have a vaginal delivery, you are only supposed to have 24 hours with your baby. If you have a C-section as an inmate, you get two days in the hospital. So despite having vaginal delivery, uh, the, the doctor granted me an extra day with her. I don't know why. I have no idea. Um, but they wanted to keep an eye on me, and I will forever be grateful for that extra day. But 48 hours passes so quickly. I did my absolute best to stay awake during those uh, very brief hours. So I was so exhausted and I wasn't eating because I couldn't really hold Micah and eat at the same time. So I didn't care. I wasn't eating. After you give birth, you need to rehydrate. You need to get your strength. You need to eat food. You need to walk around. You need to go to the bathroom. These are normal things that you have to do after you've just given birth. I wasn't doing any of those things. Three o'clock, two days later, um, the corrections officers came in. My daughter was in the bassinet. They said, Kent, it's time to go. And I told them no. I was holding on to the bassinet and I was willing to fight these officers to be able to stay in this room with my daughter. I couldn't leave her. I knew that she was going into foster care, but I didn't have anyone come in and tell me where she was going. I didn't have anyone tell me what foster family they found to place her with. I couldn't call anyone and tell anyone I was there. I couldn't ask any questions because no one told me anything. I was a security risk. I wasn't even a person. I was an inmate. I wasn't Jessica that just gave birth to her first child. I was inmate 711-548 and a security risk, an inconvenience just another drug addict that had a baby. That's how I felt. Lower than anything or anyone. I just felt so unbelievably empty and uh, worthless. These officers needed to get me out of this room, though. They knew that this was going to be difficult. Um, they grabbed me by the back of my shoulders because my back was to them. They were standing in the doorway and they threw me down in this chair, this wheelchair, and I had just given birth. My hoo-ha is the size of a watermelon. I am swollen. I am sore. I have stitches. They throw me down into this wheelchair. They immediately chain me up, shackle me up and make sure that I am handcuffed out and they spin me around in this wheelchair and fly me down this hallway. I have just left my newborn baby alone in a room and I am being flown down this hallway fast. People are taking notice. These officers are very dramatically trying to get me out of this hospital, out of the free world, and into a van to take me back to prison. I'm crying uncontrollably. They put me in the van, and I don't really remember much else. I remember seeing Sally Port of the prison, which is the back of the prison where inmates go through. I don't remember what the officer said. I don't remember them searching my things or strip searching me down. I don't remember anything. All I remember is waking up in the infirmary. And I think somewhere in me knew that this was wrong because most people, when they had their babies, they went right back to general population and they would see the doctor within a few days or whatever. Um, I wasn't in general population. I was in the infirmary and I couldn't put together two thoughts as to why I slept. That's all I remember doing. I don't remember eating. I don't remember sleeping, but I was in such a fog that I don't remember anything. I don't remember what officer said. I don't remember trays of food being brought in. I kind of remember one of the porters, which is a girl that cleans the area asking me if I was okay, but I don't think I could say anything to her. Um, it was my inability to speak that made the 
officers check me into the infirmary where I was just kind of kept on watch. I wasn't on suicide watch. I was just kept in the infirmary in this little room with a bed, like a hospital bed. And I was just kept there and left there and was alone. It was kind of a dark room, um, but kind of like a hospital room, right? Just like the bare, 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 bare minimum of a hospital room is the prison infirmary. Um, at this medium level security, it's actually a lot nicer than it would be in the um, in the maximum security, I think, if I remember correctly. But again, I don't really know why I'm there. I don't know how long it takes me to connect the dots between you had a baby and she's gone to you need to get the fuck out of this bed. Because our brain is designed to be able to compartmentalize trauma to protect ourselves, I don't know where these memories are. Um, and that's very uh, conducive with post-traumatic stress disorder. My brain was compartmentalizing this trauma in an attempt to protect me from the pain that I was going through. And that's why there are gaps in my memory here where I just don't remember how long I was even in the infirmary. All I know is one morning I woke up different. I woke up and I thought, what the fuck are you doing here? Get out of this bed. Get up. You have to get out of this bed. You have to go back to general population. You have to take classes. You have to get your daughter back. What the fuck is wrong with you? Get up. You're not going to get your custody of your daughter laying in this bed. Get up and fight for her. Fight for Micah. That is your only task. That's all you need to do is just get up and fight for Micah. If you're not strong enough for Jessica, be strong enough for Micah. Bitch, let's go. You got work to do. I don't know what came over me that day, probably two weeks after Micah was born. I have no idea. I have no concept of, of what hit me. But I told the nurse I'm ready to go back to GP and she sent me back. Immediately, I was swarmed with people in GP asking me what happened, asking me you know, if I was okay or what was going on. And I told them to get away from me. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to show them the picture that the social worker took of me in the hospital. That's all I had of her in the world. I didn't want to mention it. I just wanted to get to work. I wanted to focus on somehow getting out of prison to go get my daughter. I didn't see a picture of what my daughter looked like for four months. The foster family was trying to send me like huge photo albums and the prison would only allow five pictures. So eventually the foster mom kind of got frustrated and just sent one picture when Micah was three or four months old. If you were new here and you were listening and you don't know if I got to name my daughter, I did. I named her. She is named after my brother, Michael. Her name is Micah McKenzie. So at six months, I had a court hearing and I was able to hold Micah for 15 minutes in chambers. At this point, I told the foster mom, thank you so much for being there for me when I couldn't be. I wanted her to know how grateful I was for her and what an incredible job she's doing. She was writing me letters and updates and everything. And her husband is a police officer and I am a criminal. So there was a little bit of tension in that room, but I could tell these are two people that absolutely love my daughter. They love her. She's very well taken care of. She's in this beautiful dress for court with two little pigtails. And, and I was just so grateful to be able to hold her for a little bit. I went back to prison after that court hearing was just new motivation. Seeing her was everything that I needed in the world. Well, I eventually got released from prison and Micah was about one and a half years old. At that point, I had to fight and it was a dog fight. I had to do hair follicle drug testing. I had to do child abuse testing, NA and AA meetings, comply with parole. I had to do, psycholo I had to do um, therapy, weekly therapy, 
I had to save up enough money to get an apartment and a car. That was a struggle because um, I had two minimum wage jobs and a catalog of felonies in the South. Okay, so a lot of people didn't want to rent to me. I heard no over and over and over and over again. And I was so close to giving up until I finally found one duplex that was so ratchet. This guy was like, "Um, can you afford first and last month's rent? And I was like, yeah, it's right here. Please take it. I'm going to lose my daughter. And I just told this dude, I'm about to lose custody of my daughter if you don't give me this apartment. Everyone's telling me no, and I don't know what the fuck to do. Please help me. I have the money. I have two jobs. I'm working my ass off. And he gave me a chance but my fight wasn't over. I had to go visit my daughter who was placed four hours away from me in Searcy, Arkansas. I was living in Springdale, Arkansas. It's quite a drive, uh, three and a half or four hours. And before I was able to save up money for a little hoopty car, I had to borrow cars or ask for rides and hustle that, which was very difficult for me. I was also released with no ID. So as a New Yorker, I had to get all of my documentation, my social security card and birth certificate from the state of New York in order to get an ID. This was a fucking nightmare for me. Um, I had tons of little challenges along the way, but two hour visits turned into four hour visits, which turned into six hour visits. And then I got overnight visits and then I got temporary guardianship. This is where Micah came home for a few weeks and was living with me full time, going to daycare while I was going to work. It was during this time that I was really able to get to know Micah so much better. She was able to acclimate to my apartment, which didn't have a refrigerator. It did by the time she was staying there. I was able to get one, but oh my gosh, just so many obstacles and struggles. Now, Micah is over two and a half years old. I have fought for a year by the time we get to uh, these visits where she is with me and living with me full time, but I don't have custody. This is temporary. I also have an active warrant and the caseworkers, I had no idea if they found that information or they didn't find that information. Um, I was hiding that from uh, DHS because I knew that I can't have custody of Micah with an active warrant in Texas. It's a misdemeanor, non-extraditable warrant that I have still yet to clear up. Uh, But essentially, I know that they can tell me that they're going to terminate my rights at any time because this is an open case. And if they find that warrant and they go digging just a little bit, they're going to see that I um, do still have some work to do on my criminal record. And, um, you know, this could get pushed back 90 days because this is a 90-day jail sentence in the state of Texas. It's a uh, misdemeanor high enough to where they uh, won't let it go with a fine. I would have to serve 90 days moving forward. We have a court hearing. It is at this court hearing that everything is on the table. All my progress, everything I've done, all my visits, my lease, my car title, my two jobs, pay stubs, my savings account, pictures of Micah's room that I've put together with the help of coworkers and friends and Micah's family. Everyone kind of came together to help me set up a, a space for Micah. The foster family, when she moved in with me, gave me all of her belongings and toys and clothes. And they were such an incredible resource to me, both emotionally and physically. They were so unbelievably kind. We call them auntie and uncle, and they're just a great, they're just a great family. I drive to court with Micah that day absolutely terrified because again, I have no idea what's going to happen. And these caseworkers were never nice to me. 
in, in a sense that they never gave me hope. They didn't encourage me and tell me that I could do it. One caseworker, and I will never forget her as long as I live, she was nice and polite, but she was not encouraging. So she would tell me like, oh, you're not making enough progress. I bet they're going to terminate their right, your rights, or you have to do this. You're not doing this fast enough. And she was just not, not helpful. If you are currently going through that, the caseworker has no idea what that judge is going to say. They can speculate. They can guess. They can tell you what might happen, but they don't know what that judge is going to say, and that judge has the final word. Don't take what they say to heart and talk it over with the judge when you have court. Do everything that they say, but don't give up because of what the caseworker has said to you. They are not on your side. And I'm sure there are caseworkers listening to this that say, no, I am very much on my on these people's side. I do want to see reunification. But that just wasn't my experience. And it wasn't the experience of so many people that I've talked to. I'm sure there are great caseworkers out there that genuinely care about these people. I'm sure there are. And if you are great at your job and you love the people that you work with, um, thank you. Because we need good caseworkers that love the clients and want to see reunification when at all possible. That is the goal of foster care. It is not termination of rights. It is reunification whenever it is safe for the child. That is what should happen, right? Now, of course, we've heard horror stories and we know that's not always the case, but that's not my story here. I go to court and the judge, I'm standing in front of her and man, is she taking an eternity. She's looking over all of my paperwork, my NA sign sheet, my psychological testing, my therapy notes, my, my car title, my lease, my pay stubs, letters of recommendation out the wazoo, um, just tons of things, right? And she sees me and Micah next to me in this cute little polo eating goldfish very innocently, completely unaware of uh, what is about to happen. This is the make or break it moment. That judge, after a couple of minutes, looks up at me, looks up at me and says, Miss Kent, I don't know if I've ever seen someone work as hard as you. You've never missed an appointment, never missed a visit, and you've never missed a court hearing. You've done all of these things in a year, and I'm very proud of you. Unless I have any objections, and she looks over to the caseworkers, they shake their head no, and I can't even breathe at this point. She says, I find no reason at this time to grant you sole legal custody of Micah. Congratulations. And I stood there. I couldn't even breathe. I have goosebumps right now thinking about it. And I said, I can go. And she smiles at me because she sees I'm holding this in. I'm about to cry like I've never cried before. And she goes, yes, you may. Good luck to you. I grab Micah. I run out to the hallway. I hit my knees. And I'm just on the ground in this courthouse hugging her and crying. And I'm so excited. And I'm so I'm so happy. I'm telling Micah, we did it. We did it, girl. We did this. I got her in the car and we were on our way to go get ice cream. I'm texting. I put her in the car. I text everyone. We won. We won. We won. I text Reese. We won. My mom, you know, Reese and I were uh, together at that time. And I told everyone I did it. I did it. <laughs> we did it. It happened. You know, I got home with Micah and I just thought, holy fuck now what do I do? <laughs> I had no idea how to be a mother. Um, but I learned one day at a time. I learned who she was. I learned um, how to cook. And despite not knowing really how to be a mom, I learned. And Micah is now nine years old and we are living our best life. Reese and I were blessed to have another daughter. Her name is Riley and she is five years old. And I can't believe looking back on that journey, how far I've come. And I'm so grateful to have Micah. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her.
That has not come without challenges. Micah has, um, Micah struggled when she first came home. You know, she went from a household of six children to just me. Uh, Reese was not living with me. Reese didn't move in for another year. This was for multiple reasons. Um, Reese wanted to make sure that Micah and I were getting used to each other and our relationship mattered first. And also Reese and I didn't want to rush our relationship. So we dated for a year before he moved in. When Riley was born, I struggled with postpartum depression and I will get into that in another episode. So I am so blessed to have Micah and my story is a unicorn story. It really is. This is such a difficult thing to go through. So it would seem on the outside looking in that all things are well and I am perfect and everything's great because I have custody of her. That trauma that I endured in prison is long lasting. I have PTSD still. Um, that comes with uh, struggles with insomnia, night terrors, and depression. And I've been off of parole now for about three years, and I'm about to celebrate 10 years in recovery in October. Um, but my recovery has changed. I am now prescribed cannabis. I smoke weed um, when I am really struggling. It's just another tool that I have in my toolbox, and I have faced a lot of criticism with that. Um, however, I can't take pills. You know, my addiction was so strong. So I'm going on two years now using medical cannabis, and it saved my life. It really did. Micah struggled when she first came home with attachment issues, um, but we learned it. We got through it together, and um, I'm just so blessed to have have all of. I am just so blessed to have Micah and Riley and Reese and our two dogs, and it is now my mission to kind of end what women go through in prison. Everything from being denied uh, period products to being forced to carry a pregnancy to term and forced to give birth chained to a bed. And then that baby is put in the foster care system. No woman should ever have to go through that. It's absolute fucking torture. It's trauma that I will have for the rest of my life. If it is absolutely necessary that a pregnant woman is arrested and put in jail and she has to give birth in prison, then that prison should be required to have a nursery program. And we will talk about a nursery program at length in another episode. But essentially, this is a dorm that is highly monitored with other mommies and babies. It's away from general population and it is completely safe. It's run mostly on donations and lifers come in and lifers live there. They might assign one lifer to help and kind of be the pod mother or whatever they call it. Um, I obviously didn't experience that, but we need to stop ripping mothers from babies. It is very traumatic for the mother. It's very bad for the baby. They need their mother's heartbeat, their mother's milk, their mother's skin. They need their mother. Just something to keep in mind. Um, I, I deserve to go to prison, but I didn't deserve my trauma. Just something to keep in mind when listening to my story is that prison, okay, yep, gotcha. PTSD and trauma is not something that I deserved. It's not something anyone deserves. And what they did to me was absolutely horrifying and it should be against the law. I'm not the first, nor will I be the last woman to give birth under those conditions. And I'm just very lucky that my daughter survived because women have gone through this in this country for years and a lot of babies don't survive it. I'm going to end today's episode here. Thank you guys so much for listening. I will talk at you in the next one.